I am so sorry that you all need this uh, stand. It gives everybody such a heart. You know, I have to admit, part of me thinking we're preaching this morning on kingdom come. Really, if the kingdom would come, I'd be at least 5'6". At least a little bit. Of, I mean, look at this. If I stay down here... <laughs> You know, there's a verse that says, uh, he must increase that I might decrease. I just step down. I'll decrease all, you know, as many ways as possible. So, you know, when you called me as your pastor, you knew you had to be a grace-centered church because I need all the grace I can get, even in just my physical uh, attributes, so to speak. So, you know, we'll demonstrate the gospel anyway. We go the extra mile here at Spruce Creek. So, Gabe, you got exercise. You did well. Everything, you know. And, and I'm up here at least five, six at this point in time. So let's pray. As we seek the Spirit of the Lord, we're turning to the living and active Word of God. And as we pray for the ministry of the Word in our lives, we do so in complete dependence and reliance upon the Spirit of God. Father, we do pray that you would give us uh, and exercise the, that influence of the Holy Spirit that would guide us into all the truth that would give us a clear sense of the meaning of your word and that your word might have success, that your word, which is living and active, would accomplish its purpose in our lives. May we surrender to it and yield to it. May our thoughts be conformed to it. We trust that you will accomplish your purpose in it, and we ask now, give us open minds and open hearts as we approach it in worship, as we hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And one more time, I'm going to ask if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word. And we're looking at this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 20. Hear the Word of the Lord. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing this morning our series of studies on the Lord's Prayer, and our approach has been to kind of go phrase by phrase, petition by petition through the Lord's Prayer. We started with the prologue or the foundation, our Father who art in heaven, and looked at the precious gift of adoption from Galatians chapter 4, that because of the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God, we are actually brought into God's family. We are actually God's children. He is our God and we are his 
children, his family, his treasured possession. So we have safety and protection and security. And when you pray, that's who you're praying to. Our Father cultivating intimacy and cultivating community with him. Our first petition, which we covered last week, was hallowed be thy name. How to treat the very name. And we looked at Exodus chapter 3. And where Moses, encountering the angel of the Lord in the burning bush, the bush where he saw the presence of the Lord but yet was not consumed, was called and sent out to be the champion, to be the deliverer of God's people. And when he, in a sense, asked of God, when I go to the people of Israel, and when I go to Pharaoh, and when I say, let my people go, who should I say is sending me? What's his name? And the Lord says, I am who I am. And so in prayer, we are cultivating that reverence, that setting apart, that keeping as holy and honored the very being, the very identity, the very name of God. So now, having set out that foundation, we're praying to the Father who art in heaven, we're setting apart his name. The next thing we seek in prayer, the next words are, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now remember what we said we were doing in this series. Why are we studying the Lord's Prayer? Besides the fact, and this is certainly a part of it, we pray the Lord's Prayer in our liturgy each and every Lord's Day so that God, through this prayer, through His Word, is forming us, is shaping us. But also we said that it's a practical thing, cultivating our own prayer life. And thinking about kind of some of the practical aspects of pray, I want you to think about something, and I want to kind of get us to maybe switch our mindset a little bit. Why do we pray? We know God is sovereign. We know God's will will be done. We know Ephesians 1 talks about that. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works. Listen to these words. All things. So God is sovereign over all things according to the counsel of his will. I loved how R.C. Sproul used to put it. He said, there is no such thing as even a maverick molecule. Now, if that's the truth, I want you to think about something. Why do we pray? And how do we cultivate prayer? So often I think we have this paradigm of we're praying in order to get God to do something. I'm here to tell you very directly, I want to change that mindset. That is not the mindset. We're not here. Yes, do we see God answer prayer? We see God answer prayer in some amazing things. And I think one of the most amazing things we see when we pray is that God changes us. Because we're praying not to get something from God, we're praying to get God. Now, if that doesn't sound like good news to you, if, that does, if, if you're sitting there, and let's be honest, I do this, you do this, come on, let's have a little, you know, Spruce Creek therapy time, let's, do, let's be vulnerable, okay? We all sit there and we struggle with this from time to time in our prayer life. It lets us know how much we need an altered, a changed. Maybe we need to have our minds renewed in this area. Because maybe we don't value just how utterly incredible it is to get God. That God is condescending and giving himself to us in prayer. That we get to relate to God. So in terms of cultivate, that's why I had the subtitle, The Lord's Prayer, An Invitation to life in God. We're united to Jesus Christ by faith. We participate in the divine nature. The Spirit of God dwells within us. How do we cultivate that 
through communion with God. And I think the Lord's Prayer, I mean, think about it. The disciples went up to Jesus and they said, teach us to pray. And this is what Jesus gave him. So I think it's a very good framework for us to be thinking about prayer. That it begins with the foundation of our Father, who we are in Christ and who he is to us. That it begins with the set. And, and I want you to notice that these first petitions, the foundation and these first two petitions, what do they focus on? None of them are what we would call yet a prayer request, are they? Our Father is recognizing who you're praying to. Hallowed be thy name is you're checking your attitude, your mindset towards the very being and nature of God. It's focused on worship. And then this morning, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is a focus on if you were listening carefully to the words Gabe read from Isaiah chapter 11, okay, they gave a great picture, the prophet did, of the kingdom of God. That the shoot was going to come up from the stump of Jesse. He was going to be born of a very historical line, the line of David, come from that particular family. That the spirit of wisdom and of knowledge and of understanding would rest upon him. He'd be a very unique man. He's the son of God and the son of man. And then the effects of his coming would be the wolf lying down with the lamb. The infant playing near the cobra's hole. The earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Now let me ask you a question. Has that happened yet? Has that occurred? How many? Should we check our 13 acres and kind of go, any wolves laying down with lambs? I want to see that. I want to look at you young parents, and maybe we need to have a pastoral counseling uh, session if I see that any of it. You know, where are your children? Oh, they're just playing out by the hole in the nest of the cobra. Okay, time out. Let's come into pastor's office. Let's talk about this for a little bit. Because we know that, that now that's a picture of the peace, of the, what the Bible calls shalom, the wholeness, the integration of the rule and the reign of God that has not yet been completed, which is why we pray, kingdom come. But it has been inaugurated in the person of Jesus Christ. Think about it. Who's the king of the kingdom? It's Jesus. And with the presence of Jesus, you have the presence of the kingdom. This is what we mean by the kingdom is already here in that it's been inaugurated, it's been begun. And when Jesus died, was rose again, and ascended into heaven... What did he do in order to pour out his presence? He poured out his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the exalted, glorified Lord. In the Great Commission, doesn't he say, Behold, I will be with you always? So the kingdom is here in a sense. It's been inaugurated, but it's not yet been fulfilled. It's not yet been completed. And so the posture, the mindset of the Christian, of the believer, whose citizenship is with the kingdom of God, is to pray and to seek to live and to seek to have fulfilled and to seek for it to come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I haven't given you a Lord of the Rings illustration in many months. So when I, when I confessed my sins, I had to confess, Lord, forgive me. I have not given a Lord of the Rings. You've got to have a Lord of the Rings story this morning. There's this place in the... If you don't know, if you don't know me, the Lord of the Rings is my favorite novel. So outside the Bible, The Lord of the Rings is my all-time favorite book. And there's this place in The Lord of the Rings where the king, this is the third part of the trilogy called The Return of the King, and the king is coming into the city 
but he's incognito. Nobody recognizes him. So nobody knows whether he's the true king. And so one of the old wise women of the city says, Ah, but the hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. So she says, let's take him into the house of healing and see if he heals some people. The hands of the king are healing hands. And then it goes on. What does it say? It says, from the throne comes newness. From the throne comes healing. To pray your kingdom come. And we're looking at it. Your kingdom. Is there a place where we should be praying your kingdom come to the nations? Your kingdom come globally? Your kingdom. Absolutely. We long for that. We look forward to that. But what does the kingdom of God, your kingdom come, mean in your life? What does it mean in your life? It means that to the degree that you come under, because what does a king, kingdom represent? The king. To the degree that you bring your life under the throne. To the degree that right now you bring your heart, your mind, your life under the Lordship of Christ. To the degree that you bring a relationship, a marriage, a friendship, a family, a community, a business under the Lordship of Christ. There will be newness. There will be not perfection, not triumph, but newness. There will be life. There will be healing. There will be restoration. There will be integration. It begins now. It will be completed later. And notice one other thing. Notice one other thing. As one commentator reminds us, he says, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, this rules out any idea that the kingdom of God is purely a heavenly, by that we mean otherworldly reality. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, heaven and earth are two interlocking arenas of God's good world. Remember Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Both heaven and earth are part of God's creation, God's good world. Heaven is God's space where God's will rules and God's future purposes are waiting in the wings. Earth is our world and our space. He says, think of the vision in Revelation 21, at the end of Revelation, it isn't about human beings being snatched up from earth to heaven, but Revelation 21, when John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven to earth. And he says, that's what we're praying for when we pray your kingdom come. Edmund Clowney, wrote, he said, the church, and recognize the church and the kingdom are not the same thing. But what is the church? The church, he says, is the colony of heaven. And what is a colony? Think about it. A colony is a group of people whose home, whose mother country, so to speak, is somewhere else. What does Paul say about the church? Our citizenship, meaning where we belong, what our values are, where our true home is. He says, your citizenship is in heaven, and we have been left on earth to colonize earth with the life, meaning the values, the priorities, the pattern of heaven. A way of putting it is that the church is called, and individual Christians are called, to make visible the invisible kingdom of God. Notice what I didn't say. Not transform, not triumph, 
but by our lifestyle, by how we live as ordinary Christians, we are making visible what's invisible to the world. Matthew 5 says that when we are praying, your kingdom come. When we are living the Lord's Prayer, as well as praying the Lord's Prayer, there are three realities. This particular text outlines three realities about the nature of the kingdom. Those three realities are conflict, orientation, and then authority. There is conflict. In other words, tension is normal. There's orientation. What do I mean by orientation? A basic posture towards life and the world. And then finally, there's authority. You could live either under law or live under grace. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I know that's what we get up and pray every morning, isn't it? Lord, this will be a good day if people are reviling me and uttering all kinds of evil against me falsely, notice what it says on your account. And then Jesus gives them kind of a posture and attitude to have towards this. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you remember what I said earlier, the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. So the power of the kingdom of God are visible in the sphere where the world least expects to see them. Remember, what is Jesus giving here in verse 11? This is the end of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, which is not an evangelistic message, here's how to become a Christian. No, what Jesus is saying is he is describing and he is saying, here is the values, here is the lifestyle, here's what describes someone who is a citizen of my kingdom. So in other words, he says, one who is a citizen of my kingdom, which is solely by grace, solely through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, solely through his righteousness, but one is that is going to be marked by certain values, values of the invisible kingdom. And those values are not what the world expects to see. He outlines those values in the beginning part of the Beatitudes. He says those values are things like poverty of spirit, mourning, gentleness or humility, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful towards others, being pure in heart, being not a peacekeeper but a peacemaker. And then finally, standing up and being persecuted, being insulted, being hated, being reviled for the name and for the sake and for the values of your mother country, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. One commentator put on this, he says, in the life of God's people, it will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks is desirable. Think about that. What does the world think is desirable? The world goes after things like power, Money, success, prestige, status, reputation. What do the people of God prize and cherish? What describes them? What are the marks of them? You don't earn these things, but what describes a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Things that the world calls pitiable. Things like poverty of spirit, recognizing that you're powerless and you're helpless and that there's nothing. There's, you are vulnerable. 
There's nothing you can do to seize power or seize control. See, the true church then becomes too different for the world to tolerate it. The world sees the kingdom of God as a threat to its ways. And let me tell you something, it is a threat to its ways. And thus it seeks to destroy it. So if you're praying and thus seeking to live kingdom come, what can you expect? You can expect at least some measure of conflict and some measure of tension. You need to understand this is normal. And if this is the response of the world to the kingdom of God, how are those who belong to the kingdom to live in the world? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes, he says, Dear friends, speaking to the church, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, now listen carefully to these words, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, you've got to bring scripture and let scripture interpret scripture. If Paul says we're citizens of the kingdom, Peter is saying the implication of that is you're a stranger, you're an alien, you're a sojourner in the world. So Peter is saying as aliens and sojourners, as strangers in the world, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul and live such good lives among the pagans, which simply means the non-Christians, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, didn't Jesus just say that's going, to be hap- that's going to happen? That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You know what that means? Does that mean we transform the world? No. Does that mean we are to be triumphalistic? No. That means we are to be a faithful presence before the world. So that the world may see your, and how do we be a faithful presence? By living out the Beatitudes, by living your kingdom come, by living, by your poverty of spirit, your mourning, your refusing to seize power. So when others seize power, you live by a different mandate. You live by a different value. You are a colony of heaven. And so that they see your good deeds. And they marvel. They wonder. They're at least intrigued. Yes, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension. You are a faithful presence in the midst of the world. And Jesus goes on to say, and he gives two images out of ordinary life to describe your basic posture or what I call the next point, your orientation towards the world. He says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now friends, look at the tense of the verbs here. You are the salt of the earth. The mood of the verb is indicative. Jesus is not urging his disciples. He's not urging us to become something they are not. He's saying, this is what you are. And why? that's why I said this is not a text about how to become a Christian. There are plenty of those in the scripture. This isn't one of them. This is a text of describing, this is what a disciple is. And he's saying a disciple is the salt of the earth. And a disciple is, a follower of Jesus, is the light of the world. And you may go, how in the world can that be the case? 
Glad you asked. Here's the answer. Who is it who's the one who said, I am the light of the world? Jesus. Where does Jesus live today? Physically, he lives in heaven at the right, right hand of the Father Almighty. But what did Jesus do? In fact, a couple of weeks, we're going to look at Pentecost Sunday, right? What did he do on Pentecost? He poured out his spirit. That is what? The spirit of the glorified, exalted Lord. What did he say at the end of the Great Commission? Behold, I am with... What did he mean by that? I, in the person, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, I am with you. So where is Jesus today? He's in a sense both in heaven and he is where? In his church. And so by virtue of our union with him, he is the light of the world. You are not detached from him. You are in him. That makes you the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now think about it. What does salt and light do? These, remember I said these are just ordinary images. Common household things that Jesus is using to describe extraordinary things. Well, first of all, one of the main functions, especially in the original context where there was no refrigeration, was salt was a preservative. It was rubbed into the food. It was preserving. So likewise, think about an implication here. How much good do we do if we are not, in a sense, rubbed into the world? By implication, how much preserving, how much impact, how much... So if our orientation is, I know what I'm going to do. Every second of every day, I'm going to hang out with only my Christian friends. I won't talk to another non-Christian. I'll have no non-Christian friends. If that is your... Remember I said this is talking about a posture, an orientation. God produces the results. He's saying, you're the salt. So he's going to use you. This is kind of the meaning behind, and I don't always like pat answers and cliches, but this is a little bit of the meaning, you're in the world, but not of the world. But friends, if Christians aren't in the world, what is Jesus saying? If the salt loses its saltiness, in essence, he's saying, how in the world is it going to be effective? I've set up this strategy, and if you're not in the world, if you're not engaging, if you're not a faithful presence, modeling and showing them what kingdom values Marriage, family, relationships, forgiveness, how to handle suffering, how to handle money, how to handle control, how to handle your flaws, how to handle weaknesses, all the ordinary things of life. If you're not showing them, if you're not involved, rubbed into the world, the salt loses its saltiness. What is it good for other than to be trampled under the feet of men? You are the light of the world. Same thing with the image. What does a light do? A light exposes the darkness. You know, think about why we we get up in the middle of the night, right? It's dark. What's the first thing we're doing? I know about me. I'm looking for the light. I want to get oriented to get where I'm going. You need light in order to give a sense of place, a sense of orientation, a sense of direction. Jesus says very ordinarily, he goes, a light, if you put it under a basket, in essence he's saying, what good is it? What in the world is it going going to do? And the last thing I want to say about salt and light before I move on to the final point is I want us to think about something. Who is it that God uses? God works in the weak things of this world. Salt and light are ordinary things. They're not spectacular things. 
Salt is an organ. I bet you I could go into every one of your homes and find salt somewhere. Maybe the fancy sea salt, but we'll find salt. It is a common household substance. And think about the scriptures. You have examples replete in the scriptures. You've got Leah, who became the mother of Jesus by becoming the seed herself and giving birth to Judah, who was the seed. Jesus' illustration of salt is such an encouraging reminder. He is not calling you to some sort of greatness. He's calling you to ordinary, faithful presence. Making visible, though. Here, you know what the challenge is? The challenge is to our character. The challenge is, are we by our life making visible the invisible kingdom of God? See, if the world looks at you, do they see poverty of spirit or do they see arrogance? Do they see mourning or do they see you will fix and control everything? Do they see meekness, gentleness, and humility? Or do they see you're always right? Do they see hungering and thirsting so that even though we see unrighteousness and injustice everywhere in the world, there's no, we don't see the wolf lying down in the land, but is your heart kingdom come? I long for justice. I long for peoples to be getting along. See, these are the, we're making visible the invisible kingdom of God. That's our posture, our orientation. So there's going to be tension, there's going to be conflict, there's a posture. And how do we put it together? In a sense, it's what are you going to live under? What is your authority? What defines you? Look with me at verse 17. And it's really interesting because by this point in his sermon, I want you to think about something as I read this part of the text. What one thing has Jesus not spoken about yet? He's not spoken about the law. If you were a Pharisee, a scribe, a Sadducee, a teacher of the law, you know, one of the laws, expert, wouldn't you be like, uh, uh, come on, Jesus, are you going to get to it? When's the law going to be spoken about? Let's go. I'm ready. I mean, they were always on guard, right? Here's Jesus, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, nor dot, so not a smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now think about this. So up to this point, he has said nothing about traditional interpretations of the law, what to look. And here, does that mean Jesus is somehow overthrowing, getting rid of the law? That would certainly be the fear or the concern of the Pharisees, don't you think? What is he going to do with the law? If you take away the law as a means of kind of pleasing God, living your life before God, no one will make any effort to keep it. Wouldn't that be their concern? But instead, what Jesus is saying is... He's certainly not come to abolish the law, but he himself, in his person and in his work, has come to fulfill it. And so in one sense, your attitude towards the law will be an index revealing your attitude towards him. Here's what I mean. See, if you are under the reign or the authority of the law, the law would rightly be a threat to you. Because the law would condemn. 
The law says, do this and you will live. And if that's your authority, you have every right and you should be scared to death. Because the law says you must be perfect. The law says you better not make an error. You better not have a flaw. You better get it completely together. You better do it. So if that's your authority, it can only judge, it can only condemn. But think about how Paul summarizes the gospel in the book of Romans. When he says you are under grace, not under law. Now what does he mean by that? He says, he means you are under the reign or the dominion of grace, not under the reign or the dominion of law. And he is saying, it is only when you are under the domain, the authority, what defines you is the grace of Jesus Christ, that you can then look at the law and see the law for what it is, a beautiful expression of the heart and the character and the values of the Father. And if the law can't touch you, If the law can't condemn you, because what we were powerless to do by the law, God did condemning Jesus in our place. So if you're under the reign of grace, you can now look at the law and say, what a beautiful expression of my heavenly Father. And you don't live under it, but you can seek to live by it. To keep it. To grow in it. To say, these are the values of my Father. These are kingdom values. I want to grow in these kingdom values. You can look at them like we would in any family. You know, I often say, you hear me say probably more often than you'd like how much of a Yankees fan I am. You want to know why I'm a Yankees fan? My father was a Yankees fan. His father was a Yankees fan. My uncle was a Yankees fan. You were born into my family. You're born a Yankees fan. It's the values of the family. If you are, see, here's what our attitude, listen to what the text says. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these, you know what that's showing? See, there's two, in a sense, two sides to the same coin. Two ways you can have a wrong attitude towards the law. One that is saying, I better legalistically keep every detail of it. If not, God's going to get me. I missed my quiet time today. Oops, I tithed 9.2%, not 10%. Uh Uh-oh, I threw a football around on the Sabbath. I blew it here. God's going to get that attitude, very legalistic or moralistic. Or the other attitude that says, oh, it doesn't matter how I live. doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't. Neither one are defined by being under grace. Neither one are defined by knowing you are under the dominion of the one who says you are defined by the righteousness of Jesus. You have not your own righteousness, but you actually have the righteousness of Jesus. Do you know how that frees you to be able to say, what is my father like? What does he love? What's important to him? It changes your entire mindset and you can begin to grow in terms of embracing his values, living his values, living, and the Lord's Prayer gives us kind of that index, that foundation, that, in a sense, that paradigm for what it looks like to live the kingdom life. We can begin to pray and to live and to seek, because we're not under law. We're under grace. We can live. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, what is it that's your authority? Functionally. What is it that's your authority? Is it law or is it grace? 
See, if it's grace, you really then will be able to look at the law and say, I love this, because I'm not judged by it, I'm not condemned by it, I'm judged by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, you take a deep breath and say, wow, I can look at the Father and say, what does He like? Help me reflect your values. Help me reflect your priorities. Help me reflect your pattern and be a faithful presence in the world. I don't know about you, I think that'd be awfully attractive to the world. Yes, it'll, it'll raise conflict. But if we have that posture and that authority, I think that can be awfully attractive to a watching world. Father, teach us how to live under grace. Teach us how to live and pray and seek kingdom come. We ask, Father, that we would look at more and more who Jesus is, what he's done for us, the glory of the gospel, and that it would enable us to freely be able to look at what you like, what you love, what you hate, and that we'd be able to live for you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.